0: will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, and today I am alone. That's right, we're just talking with me. You're going to be listening to my thoughts. Now, we're doing something special today. Uh, I put out a short time ago, and it's on our website. Please go check it out, see if uh, you're still interested. You can go on there, and for the wonderful price of £10, you can have me give my thoughts and... uh, have a discussion or at least have a chat about a film book comic whatever and on this occasion a uh, long time supporter uh good friend of the show and uh, appreciated supporter nick bray uh, sent me a request to uh, and, and obviously paid up he went on the website did all the bits and pieces wonderful and has asked me to uh, consider the last film i believe the last film of peter sellers to so the last on-screen performance of peter sellers in 1980 the Fiendish Plot of Doctor Fu Manchu. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give my thoughts on this, and I've probably got off on some tangents. You know what I'm like, that's what I do. So, this film, The Fiendish Plot of Fu Manchu from 1980, stars Peter Sellers as Fu Manchu and Dennis Nayland Smith. It also features a very young uh, and very attractive Helen Mirren, David Tomlinson, Cis Caesar and a bunch of others, uh, including Bert, Bert Kwok, which we'll get onto in a minute. Uh, the, the story of the film, or the plot of the film, is uh, Fu Manchu, at the age of 168, is celebrating his birthday, and uh, it has come time for him to once again take uh, a sip or a drink from his elixir of youth, a drink that gives him back his youth and will allow him to continue his reign of criminality and terror for a number of years. However, during the, the the ceremony in which he is to be passed, the uh, vial of the elixir uh, it is spilt and it is all destroyed, and therefore he has to set up a series of crimes uh, to steal the ingredients so that he can reformulate this elixir uh, and take it before he gets uh, before he dies, basically. Um, and then so he sets up this thing, and it's they then bring in the FBI. So in Scotland Yard. When these crimes happen, bring in Nayland Smith, who has crossed paths with uh, Fu Manchu in the past, and is there as a sort of like the detective nemesis, the uh, the counterpart to Fu Manchu, uh, and they go on this adventure to bring down Fu Manchu. Whilst all these crimes are going on, the tone of the film is this is supposed to be, and I say supposed to be loosely, is supposed to be a comedy. Mm-hmm. If anything, it's supposed to be a parody. Um, and I think parody sort of was starting to really, you get you get sort of parody sort of hits its real niche in the sort of seventies and eighties, um, but it's it's not like this isn't um, hot uh, hot shots or uh, lethal you know, naked gun, right? This isn't you know or even loaded weapon like National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon. This isn't that level of. Um, Absurdity and comedy like this isn't sort of you know that kind of, of, of lampooning of tropes it has it has it's more gentle than that like it has an absurdity to it mostly um, I mean for example like you know Peter Sellers is uh, Nayland Smith goes everywhere with the lawnmower and is his sort of compatriot and sort of partner and he's at one point stolen from him in the film and it, it devastates him um it, but it's all very gentle. It's not like a big, sort of like, you know, it's not like a rib-punching, sort of like, you know, um, just to make a complete comparison, like it has absurdity, don't you? We'll get to the absurdity. But it never sort of hits you in the same way as sort of like the some of the stuff that was done in Hot Shots or Hot Shots Joe or The Naked Gun. Or, you know, it's not really sort of like
1: broad
0: comedy. Um, if anything, I would say that sometimes some of the jokes in this, like you have to have a real knowledge of some of the things that they're talking about. But if it's a parody, it has to be parodying something. So what is it parodying? Um, well, let, let's go back even further. So, so Fu Manchu is a character that was created and first appeared in 1913, created by uh, a guy called Sax Roma, British uh, writer. Uh, and he appeared in the book. was called The Mystery of Fu Manchu. And it appeared in serialised form. In like the pulp magazines and newspapers and that sort of thing, and then was collected as a series of books, and there were a whole host of Fu Manchu books. I think about this—this like this fourteen, maybe, maybe more than that. But fourteen's in to to my head between nineteen thirteen and nineteen fifty seven, I think. Uh, and there's a whole you know, bunch of them, like so. This sort of like the reign of Fu Manchu, the island of Dutch Fu Manchu, uh, the daughter of Doctor of Doctor Fu Manchu, and so on and so forth. I've got quite a few of them actually. They're not bad. They're good pulpy novels. However, they are very much of their time, uh, and uh, especially some of the early ones. So, but they're, but they're weird in the sense that um, so that the the protagonist or the antagonist, weirdly no the Fu they are named after Fu Manchu. Doctor Fu Manchu is is the is the antagonist. He is the one that is um, committing the crimes and and all that kind of stuff. Um, but in doing so, you have to have someone find him. And so you get Nayland Smith, who becomes like it's it's like a Sherlock Holmes to Moriarty kind of scenario, but instead of it being sort of like the Nayland Smith series, it's the Fu Manchu series. Like so it's named for the villain. Um, however, the, pro- the problem is, it's incredibly racist. Like if you read it now, it stems from um, a period in the sort of uh, early twentieth century, which lasted well into the sort of. Well, into the 40s, so not even it, it didn't die off for a while, it's quite recent. This idea they called the Yellow Peril, and uh, I'm not saying I support it, I'm just saying I'm explaining what it was. And this was like categorized like this thing of the Yellow Peril, and this Yellow Peril was, was fear of um, g- growth and strength rising in the east. And a big part of this came from Victorian expansion, so from a British point of view. You may have heard of things like the Opium Wars, in which case, where we basically rolled in, took Hong Kong, bombed the crap out of parts of China, and sailed away. And we did it a couple of times. Um, And we had, so we had this weirdly sort of a love hate relationship with with the East, both China and Japan. Uh, And I suppose they're sort of like the sub Asian sort of countries, you know, that sort of um, Korea and, and, and the Philippines and stuff. We traded with them all. We we traded with them. We went there. We wanted to be there, but we were really scared of um, then their their population and uh, the growth of ideas and all this other stuff. So um, when they started sort of to show some strength in you know there's this, this splendid isolationism that they had for a long long time, especially in China uh, and Japan. You know they had this idea of sort of splendid isolationism of like you will not come in. Like you know we do not trust the outside world. You are a foreigner and therefore and so this xenophobia went both ways like let's not let's not kill ourselves like you know it's not no no one is innocent in this look weirdly looking back at history very few people are innocent um no, no that's not to say there aren't innocents I'm not getting into it but on a country scale anyway um, in england as the empire sort of like Entered its final phase. This idea of the yellow peril really struck home, and so you get characters like this. It also comes back to haunt in uh, there are a number of sort of like but Disney and Looney Tunes cartoons with Asian depictions of characters, very stereotypical. You know, so sort let's of, say the yellow skin, the big teeth, uh, slit closed eyes, these characteristics, very stereotypes, and very, very incredibly racist. <laughs> And the, the 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 lispy voice as well, you know, this lisp the lispy accent as well, which I'm not going to do. Um, and th- and this sort of idea sort of it, it, it ebbs and wanes, and it obviously came back during World War Two, uh, especially more against uh, Japan than China. But um, post that, it sort of it, it doesn't go away; it just becomes less relevant. Until you get to the eighties and you get the fear of Japan again and its expansion, its technological expansion, sort of post World War Two, but that's a different kettle of fish. Pulling this back, what I'll say is that this idea is, um, this film. One of the problems I have with this film is Peter Sellers. Like Peter Sellers is great. If you've ever watched uh, loads of films, but like you know the Pink Panther films or um, Doctor Strangelove and those sort of things, like he is very good. at He's a character actor. He's a very good character comedian. Like he, he's able to play the buffoon, um, but where he's able to play uh, a Frenchman in Doctor Clouseau, um, and it's fine because he's playing a white character and that sort of thing. You know whether they be French or American or whatever, or even a German, as he does in you know in um, Doctor Strangelove. The problem comes when you start to cross um, race and i'm i'm really struggling with how to sort of, how to articulate this without sounding that sound too rough but basically he he is wearing makeup uh, and other things to make him look chinese and he then plays fu manchu and you know it's played for comedy in some parts however weirdly like fu manchu is never played as the buffoon do you know what I mean? And that, and that's the weird thing about this. And even going back to those original books, when you read them, um, there are phrases in there. There's a, there's a scene in particular in one of the early books I remember uh, where Nayland and one of his partners <coughs> are in a hotel and they're under attack from these sort of these Chinese, um, not quite ninjas, but these 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 sort of martial artists and. Um, There's a phrase where one of them, they're crawling through the window to sort of like sneak up on Nayland. And when they describe, when Nayland spots them, he describes them as these fighting yellow beasts. And it's always stood out to me in that phrase. Like, you know, but there's almost like a a begrudging respect of it. Like, they're going to, yeah, we're going to use racial slurs up the wazoo. You know, we're going to go mad for it because we can in these books in the 30s and before. But also, we're going to acknowledge. That Fu Manchu is a great strategist. He's you know incredibly intelligent. He is you know this great master criminal, um, and also their soldiers and their fighters are incredibly talented and incredibly dangerous. And so it's a bit like I sort of see it like as in wrestling. One of the things in wrestling, when you're cutting a promo, or when you see these really good guys cutting a promo, it's not just them coming out and slating their opponent. You basically have to big up your opponent. To make sure t- to you look good, so if you're going to win, or even if you get, if even you, you know if you go over, or even if you have you know line your back, you have to make sure your opponent looks good. If you go out there and say like he's a weed and he's rubbish, and I've seen he, he can't wrestle his way out of a paper bag, and that's all you do, or well, when he kicks your ass, you're like oh well you look even worse, <laughs> you know. Or if you win, well all you've done is beat the guy you can't get wrestle his way out of a paper bag, so you have to sort of big them up, and it sort of feels a little bit like that that. These books were designed to uh, fuel the fear of the yellow peril. Like you know, this thing is a it's a peril because it's a danger. If it was all buffoonery and they were played for laughs, or they were played to be stupid, or whatever, like it wouldn't work because there'd be no fear. But why would we fear these people? Though they're, they're they're silly and they're daft and they they can't do anything. They are barbaric. And so there's this weird line that that sort of this balanced across through the novels in particular, where they are depicted as both incredibly dangerous, and incredibly sophisticated, and incredibly intelligent, yet described as things like beasts and uh, subhuman. And so it's a bizarre balance, and it's it doesn't always work. The books, if you're just looking for fun, pulpy. If you if you want to go back to those thirty eras pulps, like they're good, they're good fun, they're good pulpy adventures. They're very silly in some places, and you know, sort of like escaping ridiculous scenarios and all that kind of thing. But be aware that they do carry a stigma of the era. That th- thankfully, if it hasn't gone completely, is going away. Uh, you know, it's just getting mashed. So just be aware of that. This book, this film, the Phoenix Plot of Fu Manchu, carries some of that with it. Now, the opening of the film is a display, a fantastic display of athleticism and martial arts from six um, guys who are who are chosen to be Fu Manchu's sort of like chosen uh, fighters or chosen warriors for this for this mission, the series of crimes. And then it goes off for them to be in training, and you know they're then looked over by this chubby guy who, um, <laughs> again, in Chinese makeup and, and, and sort of gar- garb, uh, and it's it's really uncomfortable. But then you've got these guys and they're doing flips and they're doing sort of like these, you know, all this sort of kicking and they're using weapons and, stuff. and it's really it is seriously impressive. Like think about when you see those sort of like you know you see those Buddhist uh, warrior monks doing all their stuff where they sort of like you know they run up a pole. And then they hang there and stuff. And you're like, how is this physically possible? Or they sort of like they, you know, they'll crack a cement block with their face. You know, these people have got such immense control over their bodies. So the, it follows this same line where you are going to display how dangerous and how you know um, talented these guys are uh, from the outset. For you to go, these are a threat. They are dangerous. We need someone to face off against these. That's why you need Nayland and Smith. However, then, in the film, they will be routinely shown up to be defeatable. They are beaten time and time again. And it's that thing of, like, well, we've shown how good they are, so Nayland must be better. And it's, it's exactly the same thing. And it shows this line of English, uh, or British, I should say, so the Empire, um, sense of superiority. And again, this film is, is set in 1933. It makes it clear, it's around 1933, which again, it thinks it's a joke. I mean, it works, but um, it is. It's showing this sort of notion of this sort of the waning empire, but there's still this sense of self-importance within the world, and it drips with it in this film, like you know, and also, but it brings in both this Western uh, versus Eastern, um, rhetoric const- constantly. If it was just Nayland Smith versus um, Fu Manchu, as it often was in the books, um. It would be just a case of man versus man. You could literally play it man versus man. This is a game of cat and mouse, and it's it, race has got nothing to do with it. It just so happens that one's Chinese and one's English. It's fine. However, like Nayland Smith is brought in and then routinely supported throughout the film by uh, members of Scotland Yard and two American FBI agents, and so you do get this sense of of West versus East, um, uh, and at the center of this is sort of like Nayland. And so it, it does. It carries up with it, and especially in 1980. Weirdly, as well, that sort of the, the the Russians are involved in it. And it's 1933, so you would be talking communist Russia, um, and it's them that have the, the 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 first crime is for a diamond to be stolen, and so it's stolen. It's a Russian Tsar's diamond, um, and but it's stolen in America. So, which again, like you think like the the Russians having some art display or historical display in America in the 1930s seems incongruous, I suppose, because we know it more as the conflict of the Cold War. And especially in America, especially in 1980, when you were sort of like, you know, yes, you only had ten years left of the Cold War, but um, you know, Glasnost hadn't really taken off at that point, so you hadn't really got that sort of like the de- uh, de-escalation of, of, of animosity between the two, so it was still pretty tough. People were still fearing that nuclear reprisal. Um, so it it feels odd in that respect as well. Like it doesn't seem to know why, but it, it wants to do these things. Um And so yeah, so you've got this East versus West sort of sense throughout the entire film. Uh <clears throat> and so they have this idea of sort of sophistication and stuff in the East and, and but the sort of like common sense and uh, stiff upper lipidness and all this other stuff in the in the West. Um and so yeah, and that sort of seems to just play out and then it then it just becomes scene after scene of, of, of silliness now Helen Mirren plays a police woman who is then used to be a uh, stand-in for the Queen now there's a d- dripping with, with sort of like premonition because of course she then played the Queen again in, in uh, The Queen in the 90s for, uh, I think early, early 2000 actually uh, the film that follows the, the immediate aftermath of Princess Diana's death Um. But here, she's playing a different Queen, because it's 1933, so it would be the Queen Mother? I don't know, even if it is, actually, because, what, so, she was born in, not going to try and figure out, can't be bothered, doesn't matter, but she's playing a version of the Queen, but she's clearly playing Queen Elizabeth II, so it plays weird at times, it really does. Um and it has these weird moments it constantly has these odd little moments in it where you're like, oh, that makes sense like she plays saxophone it never, it, ne- it, it never really goes anywhere until you have a scene with her in Fu Manchu and it's sort of like, he is seduced by her playing the saxophone other than that, like it, it makes no sense um, but they want to load this thing with easter eggs so at the very beginning um, when the, the elixir is spilt it is spilt by Bert Kwok uh, and Bert Kwok is an Asian actor who played um, uh, Detective Clouseau's sort of like partner. Um, Christ, I can't remember the name now. That's terrible. Um, but throughout the film, he was the one that would like jump out of a cupboard, and then have a fight, and all this other stuff. Like, so they knew each other. And at point, when he spills it, he sort of says, "I know you." Um, and you know, it's just clearly sort of like a, a an Easter egg. Um, and it's fine. You know, it sort of sets the tone. That's fine. But again, like it's one of those things when you watch the opening of this. If you didn't know anything about the box and that, you go, "What is this?" More than that, though, like Fu Manchu is not. This is not the first outing of Fu Manchu on the screen. So there are a series of Fu Manchu films from the sixties. I, I don't think it's any earlier than that. Sixties and early seventies. And again, Fu Manchu, not played by an Asian actor at any point, played by um, the great Christopher Lee. In the Hammer ones, at least, um, and so you do get this thing of like you know this is a send-up of those films as well, which would which were designed to be um, adventure, sort of like darker adventure films. You know that that, that that Hammer did. They didn't just do horror; they did a whole bunch of stuff, and they did do a series of adventure films, um, like She and. Uh, Completely escaped me now, but yeah, these are one of them, the Fu Manchu films. So, Christopher Lee did he got he got dressed up, he got his you know, the skin color changed, he got he would wear the garb and all this other stuff. And again, it feels incredibly uncomfortable. I've only seen one of them, and it was yeah, to be fair, it was fine, but it didn't date, it hasn't dated well. So, um, it's clearly making a parody of those, but instead of sort of like it misses a beat because instead of pointing out. Like the ridiculousness of having someone, having a white guy playing a Chinese act, playing a Chinese role, and highlighting that, it it, it goes all in, um. And so that bit feels, I suppose it's it's relevant to the days. T- it's it's nineteen eighty, so it was. It's not. The, you know, it's clear the first time. It's not the last time. I mean, you know, at least when Eddie Murphy did it, he, he's playing like you know well, most of it plays like a, a, black actor, and he's good at it, like you know, um it just it just doesn't quite work with this, if I'm perfectly honest but the the thing is the tone of the film's all over the place so you have scenes that you it, it wants to be absurd but not too absurd like you know they've not lent into that complete parody as i say so you get things like nathan smith having a um a lawnmower as his best friend as his sort of like constant companion um his butler is very sort of aware self-aware of the whole thing and so very sort of you know there are jokes all around there um when it's when it's um the queen is you know Helen Mirren plays the queen and she's about to be assassinated or kidnapped at one point um they look for these um chinese warrior spies or assassins whatever in the audience and their disguises are like really bad like one's wearing like a really fake obvious beard one's dressed as a woman and all this other stuff and it's like you know it's, there's these absurd jokes and it's all sort of topped off by this really really Bizarre end piece that is both fantastic and awful at the same time, um, and so this is where the parody becomes utter absurdity. And I think again, it's ta- it's trying to tap into these ideas that have been used for things like Doctor Strange Love, like you know, the absurdity, the weird. Like you don't have to fully understand it. Um, and again, I'd even say things like Rocky Horror, like there's no, you know, I mean, it's a musical ending. There's a musical. Um, event like a musical set piece at the end of this film where Fu Manchu does get his elixir and then he comes out and does this big song and dance number and that's the end of the film that's it you know and you're like oh right is it going to be more like you know he's young, he's young again like it's bizarre and it's not even good like it's not even a good song it's it's like some sort of like Elvis parody it's not even f- if I'm honest I'm sorry Nick I'm saying all this but it's not even funny It, it but there's a great, great scene where Nayland follows Fu Manchu down into his laboratory, and um, Manchu, Fu Manchu and Nayland face off. And at one point, you think this is going to be it. There's going to be sort of either a big monologue about why he's doing this and this sort of stuff, and, and and you know Nayland's like clearly old as well. These are two guys past their prime. Like one's 168, one's less so. But again, this is st- Sellers leaning into his age and that sort of thing. There's a great discussion about having someone around, if you're 168, you see people die, you grow past people, you know people, and there's no one ever there to either to challenge you or to support you or to do whatever. And so he actually offers, I he doesn't offer, he gives. I should say, he actually gives Nayland a vial of the elixir, and and basically says, like, look, we could be young again you know like we can do this dance forever what do you say and it's it's sort of i know it doesn't mean to it's clearly not I'm trying to be deep because the rest of the film clearly isn't but you know it, it, it to me as a nerd and as a comic fan and stuff like this clearly taps into all those things about that we talk about with like batman and the joker or you talk about with uh, uh, sherlock holmes and moriarty and um, you know, Green Lantern, Sinestro, or whoever—like th- th- there are characters that have a nemesis, like Captain America and the Red Skull. Like they're always going to be doing this dance. They—they you know, they are two ends of a spectrum, and so they are always going to be there. They need to be their yin and yang, or they need to be—you know—these opposing forces. Um, they need to exist, and it's all—it sort of, it acts in a really sort of touching way. Of that acknowledgement of like, look, I'm taking this, whatever. Like, I can take this, and I can, I'm going to carry on. But I would love for you to take it too. And tomorrow morning, we get up and we do this dance all over again. Um, and it's it's kind of touching. Like Nayland doesn't take it, which again is this idea of sort of like you know, you can take it. So, well, evil wants to persist. Evil needs to persist. Um because it, it takes glee in it. Like there's a, it's a wit maybe I'm reading into it, but there can be a glee in being evil, a glee in sort of like getting what you want. I'm hundred and sixty eight I'm a, I'm a master, I live in this castle I'm a master criminal, and I've got like ladies and I've got gold and I've got minions and I've got an army and you know, all sort of stuff like you know, I am living the life. And then you've got this aging Nayland Smith who's like, well, I put my I put my life into bringing you down. And at this point, he's failed. Like, this film's re- you, 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 Weirdly, it has this really uh, upbeat. Um, the villain wins, in all terms and purposes. It has a really upbeat song and dance number. And it, 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 as you're watching, Nathan Smith is sat to the side, slumped. Like, he hasn't died or anything. He's got his lawnmower back. But there is this notion that it's tiring trying to maintain the good. You know, it's exhausting. And, you no, know, I don't want to keep doing this. You know, I was supposed to have stopped you and now you're back. Like, there's an exhaustion to it. And I find that fascinating. I don't think it's supposed to be a commentary on any of this, but it does act as it. You can take that, this idea of, like, come on, let's keep going. I can see there would be certain characters that would do this. Like, Sherlock Holmes definitely would be leaning into this idea of saying, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's carry on this this thing. It's It's what challenges me. It's what keeps the fires burning inside. But not Nail and Smith. So, anyway, so that's sort of what I take from the film. It's an interesting film. It's I'm glad I watched it because it's, it's Sellers' final performance. And also, having watched one of the, the the Christopher Lee Fu Manchu films, to watch this is interesting as well as a parody and a, and a sort of a commentary on it. Doesn't quite work as a commentary. There are moments that are fun. There are moments that I find incredibly tedious. That the the humour doesn't really work for me. Like you know, leading into that absurdity, as well. Um, you find that Nayland Smith lives in a cottage in the middle of the woods, uh which is beautiful, but it also turns into a hot air balloon, and they use it to travel to the himalayas um and so you saw it's it's these things of like the dis this sort of continua, you know this discontinuity between tones of we want to have moments of uh mystery and we want to sort of do these things and then and they have comedy and then it just leans into the absurd and then pulls back again and it's just like oh one or the other come on really go for it or don't um and considering that like this idea of um i think it's the same yeah yeah 1980 um flash gordon you know the the sort of the the big writ large camp queen uh scored flash gordon came out the same year it goes to show that you can do those things i mean i think flash gordon was actually a flop but it's worked as a cult film, like you know, why is that a cult film in this not? And I think it comes down to that thing of accepting what it is you're trying to do. Like Flash Gordon leans into its sort of um, its campy sort of like pulp uh roots and goes for it, which is cool. Um, but yeah, but one, one of the things that, that watching this film really made me think about was characters like Fu Manchu, these characters that exist from a different era. Um, usually held up as as racial stereotypes, um, in a, in a negative way. Can can they be reclaimed, or should they be removed from history? Now you can't remove them from history. The character exists; it's there. The IP is there, or whatever. So you can't cancel it. I'm sure the the, you know, the cancel culture would probably, if it was if, it, if these were to be recelebrated today, I'm sure they would be. But. I don't want them cancelled. They exist in history. They should they should be there to be a representation of the kind of entertainment that was experienced and was enjoyed at one point. Yeah, it's wrong, but they're still pulpy adventures at, at heart. However, the question I have is, can Fu Manchu be redeemed? And by redeemed, I don't mean make him a hero. I don't want that. But could you do a, Fu, a modern... Fu Manchu movie or even let's make it in the way I have this idea that's what I'm leading to basically I have this idea of a a, a sort of a a shared universe of pulp era heroes you know so you have your sort of um, your top two really you know your Batman and your Superman of the the era the Shadow and Doc Savage and then you've got things like Justice Inc uh the Spider uh, Miss Fury and all these other characters that I think like Boom Studios have done a really good job um, of bringing back at times. And each of them have a villain in some cases, some some lesser than others. Like, you know, I don't think Doc Savage really had a particular villain at any one time, but you could do them and it, it, you could have this. In my head, you have like basically Fu Manchu becomes the Thanos of, and that's because that's, that's basically that comparison is now, is now stuck. <coughs> but Fu Manchu becomes the Thanos of this pulp universe. Like you know, who is it that's behind all these things? Like you, know, you can have like Moriarity in it, and even have like you know have him work with Moriarty But who's funding Moriarty Like who's giving Moriarty the money to do this to get, get him going? All these other things, and you lead back to Fu Manchu, Doctor Doctor Fu Manchu. Now that's us put Doctor Fu Manchu. Like you know, he's got he's educated, but as we've said, you need to make them uh, a, a reasonable threat. Um. But like it's no different to, in some respects, it's no different to Blofeld and Spectre in Bond. Like it's the character that sits behind the scenes and does these things. I wouldn't want it to be a representation. Take away the ethnicity thing. Like I'm not saying don't make him Chinese. Keep him Chinese. That's not a problem. But introduce positive Chinese characters into the film as well, uh, or the film universe. Um, but then take away, take away the sort of the nationality. Or the nationalist element of it, like you know, Fu Manchu isn't representing China. Like he's not there to. to he's not there as the Chinese um, government. Like he doesn't represent them in any shape or way. Like he doesn't really in the books either. A little, a little bit of it, but <clears throat> he is more a case of like he's an individual who runs this organization, um, and it is a threat. And he's a threat because he feels that he is. Firstly, he's able to live forever. He has this mysterious elixir. He feels he's better than everyone else or believes he's, he's more intelligent and better than anyone else. And so he's trying to manipulate the world you know, from behind the scenes. That's the character I think. It could be. Could it work, though? I mean, does the name mean anything anymore? If I was to introduce a, you know, a tweet or a thing of, of Fu Manchu, would it work? You know? Um, and I think, really, it, to some of it's going to depend on some of the things. China's becoming the... Second largest cinema going audience in the world, so there's a real question there of like, you know, could they be a part of this? Like, you know, why not make it a Chinese half done film? Like, you know, you want Neil and Smith in it, you want these characters, but introduce um other elements, you know. And I think if we're having sort of like Shang-Chi and they're really going to do the Ten Rings, even more recently, you know, Snake Eyes is really sort of like, you know, I haven't seen it, but. You know, even at Mortal Kombat, there's a real focus on these Eastern martial art and Eastern mythological characters, uh, even pop culture characters. So these characters that exist, I mean, you know, China's Chinese stuff is is big. Like um, Raya and the Last Dragon was was pretty cool. Wish Dragon on Netflix was good. You know, the, the, uh, Chinese um, and Japanese folklore is loaded with really cool ideas uh, and stories. And I think you know you could really lean into some of that in a and make Fu Manchu sort of like less of a figure of fear as a as a nationalist figure, but sort of utilize some of the stuff we have and make him a really cool character. Um, and I just wonder if that's possible. Probably sort of someone better than a writer, better than me, to do it. But that's what I'm thinking. But this film, to be the, for this film to think to possibly be the last representation of Fu Manchu on screen, is quite sad because it's it's 40 years ago. And no one really talks about this character, or the books by Sax Roma, and that may be because of the racist overtones um, and stuff. But I, I do think the, these are characters that could be reclaimed. I put it out there to to these to comic creators or someone else. Can you could you reclaim Doctor Fu Manchu? Could we make him relevant again today? Let's think about it. Anyway, there's my thoughts. A bit like what I do on the pod, on the uh, Patreon. This was my thirty minute thoughts thinking about the fiendish plan of Fu Manchu um, I've enjoyed watching it actually it's always good to watch a new film that I didn't know about much uh, so thank you Nick for the uh, donation thank you very much for recommending this film or requesting this film it's been a really good experience watching it and thinking about it um, and allowing me to talk about character that sort of I've actually been thinking about talking about for a while so this has been an access point you'll probably hear more about Fu Manchu and Sax Roma in the future uh, so, yeah, so thank you very much, Nick. Appreciate it. If you want me to talk about a film or a comic or a book or any form of pop culture uh, or 20th Century twentieth century Geek history, um, go on the website. That's 20thCenturyGeek.com. get down to the bottom of the, uh, the, fr- the front page and um, you will find a box on there that uh, you can purchase um, for... I think it's for £10. I may have reduced it. I can't remember. But you can pay and donate for me to talk about um one of those things so go and check it out more importantly on a monthly basis i now do a newsletter and i talk not just about i talk about me but i give reviews on film i recently reviewed black widow and i talk about some of the behind the scenes things that we're doing some of the stuff that's coming up on this podcast on my fellow uh, sister podcast stories out of time and space that i do with julian darius and also, some of the stuff I do outside of the podcasting world. So there have been some great updates on uh, Judging Dread, which is now uh, out for and available on Amazon and on Sequa, And on the next book I'm working on, which is, I think, going to be called Phases of the Moon Knight, uh, which is obviously going to be all about Moon Knight, and other things, bits and pieces. So you know, if you want to do that, if you go to the website, that's again Twentieth Century Geek. There is a subscribe button on there. Go on, subscribe to the newsletter. And uh, there is also competitions and also other bits and pieces on there. So well worth checking out. It's a monthly newsletter. And also, if you enjoy the podcast, if you do like what doing what we're doing. Go on to your podcast catcher. Do it now. Go on, reach down, leave us a five star review. If you can't give us leave us a five star review, leave whatever stars you want. Give us honest feedback. I'm happy to respond to that but give us a review, get some sort of those ratings and all that kind of stuff. And if you really love what we're doing and you want to support us, go check out Patreon. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash 20CGmedia, that'd be 20CGmedia, um, we have a Patreon. And on that Patreon that supports all the podcasts under the 20th Century Geek banner, so that's 20th Century Geek and Stories at a Time and Space. And we have three tiers on there. And under those three tiers, you've got Fan, Chief and VIP. And in the fan, you get access to uh, 30 Minute Thoughts, which is a uh, 30-minute podcast on which I'll give my thoughts on something that is voted for by the patrons. Uh, We have a weekly Twilight Zone uh, podcast in which me and Julian Darius are working our way through. We are trekking through the Twilight Zone, episode by episode, and giving little nuggets of information and our opinions on those episodes, and little breakdowns on sort of the themes and stuff. It's been fantastic so far. Uh, and then beyond that, at uh, the next level, you get to vote on different things as well, and you get Creator Corner, which is a quarterly podcast where I speak to a creator. This could be a writer or a podcaster or a, an artist or whatever, and we talk about one of the things they do and focus on one of their projects. And on the main thing, on the VIP, one final thing you get to do as well, every quarter, you get to vote on what I do on this main feed. There will be a poll, and you get to choose just one thing that I get to do. It's great. So, go check it out. That's patreon.com slash 2020cgmedia. Okay? Right, well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. And once again, thank you, Nick, for... uh, donating and recommending this film and in the next episode we are going to be doing some more stuff. we've got some more films coming up, story time is coming back, I'm going to be talking about the ex- the examination uh, and then we're also going to be doing our, our Summer of Stallone with our retrospective, we've got four films we've got Hawk, uh, what's it called uh, Nighthawks, Cobra Daylight and Cliffhanger some of these standalone films that we haven't really talked about so we're going to be picking up with those so ladies and gentlemen thank you very much and I shall speak to you again soon